We'll hear argument next in case 06376, Hink versus United States. Mr. Redding. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The Federal Circuit's opinion is simply wrong. Enactment of Section 6404H did not repeal District Court and Court of Federal Claims refund jurisdiction over interest denials by the Internal Revenue Service. Both circuits have found that there was pre-existing jurisdiction prior to the enactment of Section 6404H. Nothing in Section 6404H expressly repeals that jurisdiction, and there are many instances in the Code where Congress, when it does intend to expressly limit jurisdiction, will will state that in the enabling statute. Reference to the tax court in section — a specific reference to the tax court in 6404H was mandated and necessary by Section 7442 and the nature of the tax court. The tax court is only given jurisdiction over those matters where it is specifically set out in the tax code. And the established framework of pay-and-sue jurisdiction in the district courts and prepayment jurisdiction in the tax court is a well-established framework for tax litigation. That has been accepted and and enunciated by this Court as far back as the Flora opinions. It's a well-established pattern of duality of jurisdiction in the two forums. But not uh, with respect to abatement of interest in particular. Not with respect to abatement of interest, Your Honor, but as a general basis. The, The availability of a prepayment forum was originally enacted to be complementary to the ability to pay and sue in order to protect smaller taxpayers and avoid the hardships faced by having to pay in full before having access to refund jurisdiction, and in fact, perhaps to avoid bankruptcy. That uh, is completely consistent with the way this section is enacted. Section 6404H even includes the limitation that only taxpayers with a net worth below $2 million or corporations below $7 million have prepayment access to the tax court. And abatement by itself is generally a prepayment remedy. uh, On that point, Mr. Redding, it it seems odd that given this uh, tripartite system, uh, Congress would want only the tax court to be uh, restricted in the people who could claim um, the abatement, the net worth test applicable in the tax court. Uh, on your theory, if there if there is authority in the claims court and in the district courts, they're not limited to the, the net worth restrictions. That is correct, Your Honor. But I do believe that it is consistent with the intent of the formation of the tax court to provide a prepayment form to especially avoid hardship and the potential even of bankruptcy. It's very consistent with that pattern to say that the larger taxpayer can afford to pay the tax and sue, whereas the smaller taxpayer may be in greater need of a prepayment form. It's also consistent with imposing the very short limitation period for bringing an action in the tax court because there the government has a very vested interest in being able to proceed with collection of the tax. But why would you not want some a larger taxpayer to be able to proceed in the tax court if he can also proceed in the claims court? Your Honor, I can't speak to Congress's reasoning behind that, but I can understand the logic behind saying we're going to create a special prepayment remedy 
that allows the smaller taxpayer an expedited means of resolving these issues without having to first pay it and sue, whereas the larger taxpayer is not put into a hardship position, is not inconvenienced as bad by having to follow the old, well-established procedures of pay and sue. And I will note that 6404H does not apply only to 6404E1, which is the subsection we're coming under. 6404H applies to all of the abatement uh, grounds under Section 6404. And if we were to repeal jurisdiction in the, in the district court and court of federal claims over all of those provisions, then we'd be completely taking away a remedy that has, has been there all along to the larger taxpayers. But to create a new remedy that is consistent with the pattern, but that allows a small taxpayer access to a prepayment forum, I think is completely consistent with the entire history of this court, this court meaning the tax court, and its purpose. In evaluating two statutes that appear to either conflict or overlap, I think it is, in in reviewing whatever doctrine you call it, whatever canon you call it of interpretation, it, it appears to me that what this Court has always done is to look to see if the two statutes can be harmonized rather than seeing if one supersedes the other. And here, Considering the extension of, of prepayment jurisdiction to the tax court merely an additional form of prepayment jurisdiction being granted to the tax court is completely consistent with the longstanding pattern of pay and sue jurisdiction in the district courts, prepayment jurisdiction in the tax court. But you have no basis for an abatement of interest action apart from 6404H, correct? That is the only place you get the actual cause of action to sue for abatement of interest? Abatement as a prepayment remedy, yes, Your Honor. Uh, Once the IRS has failed to abate the interest and you make payment, then you have the normal refund refund provisions available. But what would you cite uh, in response to the prior cases that said you had no cause of action for abatement of interest? Actually, Your Honor, I don't believe that's what the cases said. They said you had no cause of action that could be pursued under 6404E1. But even the seminal cases, Horton and, or Selman and Horton Holmes, compared a Section 6404E1 action to a Section 6404E2 action and basically said you could have brought a refund claim if you qualified under E2. There would have been no impediment to bringing that as a refund action because there was a clearly established standard. The E2 provision is a must standard. Now, under 6404H, if it is exclusive over abatement jurisdiction, then any taxpayer who would have had access to the courts, for example, for an E2 abatement case, unless they're a small taxpayer, they'll be completely denied any remedy whatsoever. Where, where, where is E2? Is it reproduced in these materials? I got E1. I don't have E2. don't really like talking about a section I don't have in front of me. I believe all of 6404 was in the appendix, but I don't have it in front of me. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it's immediate in the code section. It's immediately below E1. Oh. But, I mean, that, I'm sorry, Your Honor, that doesn't help you. <laughs> Where it is in the material. That's I, one I'm thing about this case I'm sure about. 
<laughs> I apologize, Your Honor, but I do not have that. It is in the appendix to the petition. The entire code section is set out. Is that the one that says interest abated with respect to erroneous refund check? Or am I reading the wrong thing? Yes, sir, it is. Oh. I, but I, the one I'm looking at just has E1. Did you have a page number? At, at, at page 42 in the appendix, all, all there is, is is subsection 1. That's right. Thank you. Well, Your Honor, I have the code section in front of me now, but I, I still do not have uh, the reference in the appendix. I, I apologize, but I simply don't have it, Your Honor. Can I go back to something you just said that I thought you said that um, the People would have no remedy if the tax court were the only forum for abatement claims, and it would be the exclusive forum. But nobody it wouldn't be wouldn't deny access to anyone. Your abatement Honor. claim, if you read this as the government does, is one place where you go in the tax court. But everyone who has an abatement claim could go there. So who's being cut out? Well, no, Your Honor, everyone cannot go there. You can only go there if you're a taxpayer, an individual taxpayer with a net worth of less than $2 million. Oh, yes, yes. And, it's, and th- I had asked you before, well, it doesn't seem, it seems strange that Congress would want to limit the authority of the, of the court where most people go and have no limit for the wealthier taxpayers. Your Honor, again, my, my view of that is that Congress intended to limit the special relief of prepayment jurisdiction to the smaller taxpayers. But the availability of a pay-and-sue remedy was already in existence and continues in existence, and those wealthier taxpayers generally can afford to pay the liability in full and sue. A prepayment form which delays the collection of the tax to the government you know, the government has a special interest there in restricting access to that relief so that it can proceed with collection. And, and again, it just makes logical sense that as to a larger taxpayer, the ability to pay and sue should be a sufficient remedy. Generally, I, I thought Congress was operating on the assumption that no court could hear an abatement claim. Your Honor. That comes largely from the legislative history, the House Committee report addressing, interestingly, subsection H. And subsection H, since it applies only to prepayment abatement claims specifically, I think then then that that legislative history makes sense, because in that same page in the legislative history... Well, give me a decision of the claims court or a district court it said courts had authority to abate uh, the interest before Congress enacted this legislation. I don't believe there is a specific case out there that I can cite to where it has happened. It, it, it is reflected in both uh, Horton, Holmes, and Selman that 
that availability existed with respect to E2. To Is it fair to say that Congress acted on the assumption uh, that there was no right uh, to the abatement with, and to the payment unless it enacted the statute? Your Honor, I don't believe so. Again, because that legislative history is, that's referred to is restricted, the, the House Committee report is restricted only to the subsection creating the tax court prepayment jurisdiction. It is not relevant to the rest of the amendments to Section 6404. And I note that in doing so, Congress also did not make the restriction on the $2 million, $7 million net worth relative to the rights being granted under the other provisions of 6404. It's easy to see why uh, the only cases you have relate to E2 rather than E1. E2, which we don't have in the materials, but I have gotten a copy of it. And E1 says that the Secretary may abate the assessment of all or any part. And those cases that denied it said this is discretionary, he doesn't have to. E2, on the other hand, interest abated with respect to erroneous refund check, says the Secretary shall abate the assessment. So, really, E2 doesn't doesn't do you any good at all with respect to whether there was a cause of action before H was adopted. Your Honor, I respectfully disagree, because 6404H applies to E2 as much as it does to E1. And any taxpayer that would have met the net worth requirements, or whether or not they met the net worth requirements that are now in H, could have brought a refund suit oh, sure. to but, previously. But that's just saying if, if you used to have the entitlement under E2, and you're saying, well, you could bring cases under E2, but, in, but 6404H allows you to bring cases under E1, it would follow a fortiori that you could bring them for E2 as well, but that doesn't prove that you could bring them under E1 in the claims court or the district court. No, it does not, Your Honor. I'm, what I'm trying to address is the intent to repeal the pre-existing jurisdiction, again, because 6404H does not apply just to E1, where there might be a question about whether or not they could have brought the case previously, uh, although jurisdiction existed. Clearly, clearly, they could have brought their case under E2. I see. What you're saying is that cases that used to be bringable under E2 would now be bringable only under H, which would be, in, in effect, an implicit repeal of of E2, of E2, at least as far as suits elsewhere than in the tax court. That's correct. And, and additionally, further limited solely to the small taxpayer. The larger taxpayer who had a prior remedy would have none. It seems to apply just to abuse of discretion. I'm sorry, Your Honor? Doesn't the new statute just apply to abuse of discretion? No, Your Honor, it does not. It, it creates the standard under which the tax court may review any interest abatement claim under such. It says you have jurisdiction to determine whether it's an abuse of discretion. Maybe I'm reading the wrong place. 6404. Yes, Your Honor, that is the standard it applies to. Right. Well, that standard but, doesn't apply to the E2. There's nothing to do with it. E2 says if it's a refund debate. If not, not. It's not a question of abuse of discretion or not. Well, I think it's the standard on which they are to review the government's action, and I believe I cannot cite to the case, but there are cases that hold that a, a violation of law is a per se abuse of discretion. There are also other subsections, subsections under 6404 
which are may provisions and other 6404 subsections, which are must provisions. There are about five different subsections under 6404 that provide for interest abatement. Again, I, I come back to the long-established pattern of having prepayment jurisdiction in the tax court and post-payment refund jurisdiction in the district courts and court of federal claims. It's a well-established system, and adding a new prepayment form of relief into the tax court in no way should be implied to be a repeal of the long-established refund, pay-and-sue refund jurisdiction that normally exists. But if you went into the district court and claimed that the failure to abate interest was an abuse of discretion, what would you rely on for the, for the cause of action? If the failure to abate interest was an abuse of discretion under E-1, you'd, you'd rely on E-1 for the cause of action. The right is created by the other subsections of H. I thought I mean, the prior cases consistently, consistently said that there was no judicial review because it was may abate and that it was only with the arrival of 6404 H-1 that there was a cause of action for abuse of discretion. Yes, Your Honor, but I believe what they actually said is that there was jurisdiction to hear it, but there was not a justiciable standard that could be applied with regard to E-1. However, once Congress came in and says to the tax court, you're going to apply this standard, there is a standard of review. That now indicates Congress did not intend it to be solely discretionary. Right. And the, the district courts or court of federal claims would look to the general common law. It would look to precedents such as the APA. A abuse of discretion standard is consistently used throughout the court systems. So you want to look at 6404 H-1 saying now we have a standard, but you don't want the other stuff that goes along with 6404 H-1, which is it's in the tax court, you've got to have less than two million, blah, blah, blah. That is correct, Your Honor. I mean, the, the abuse of discretion standard is a common law standard which has been carried over into this, into this statute. But to create a — But it didn't exist before this statute. I mean, the, the, the lower courts, as I under, understand it, said routinely, yeah, you can have jurisdiction, but you have no claim for relief because there's no, no law to apply. This is totally discretionary, a matter of the Commissioner's grace. So Congress perhaps didn't grasp the subtle distinction between no jurisdiction and you can walk in the door, but you go out the next door because there's no justiciable claim. And it's, it provided peculiarly in the tax court for relief that was not available any place before. I understand that that's, that's basically the Fifth Circuit's view, Your Honor. I do not agree with that view. I think that, that Congress was merely expanding the existing structure of prepayment jurisdiction Fifth for the tax court. I thought the Fifth Circuit went your way. Pardon? I thought the Fifth Circuit went your way. It did, Your Honor. I'm sorry. The, the Federal Circuit uh, analyzed it as you have. I do not believe that that is the correct analysis. I think the Fifth Circuit has this one right. What you have is a grant of jurisdiction to the United States Tax Court for a prepayment form of relief, which is consistent with the existing pattern, and in no other instance where that has been done has there been an implied repeal. Mr. Mr. Redding, let me come back to the, the phantom E-2 
which we have finally traced down. I am not sure that H would impliedly repeal E2 because E2 is mandatory. There isn't any question under E2 whether there has been an abuse of discretion. There is no discretion. It is mandatory. To the extent that the Administrative Procedure Act would govern uh, E2, it would be for a violation of law, not for abuse of discretion. So when H says the tax court shall have jurisdiction to determine whether the Secretary's failure to abate interest was an abuse of discretion, I would take that to apply only to E1, which says the Secretary may abate, and not to E2, which says the Secretary shall abate. There's no question of, of, of discretion in E2 at all. I understand that argument, Your Honor. And That's a pretty good argument, I, 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 I agree, Your Honor. <laughs> I, I, would, I would note to the Court, though, that 6404D is also a may abate provision, which is, is in the Code. 6404A is also a permissive abatement provision. And those provisions would clearly be covered by it. I, when it says it may, uh, re, may review a failure to abate interest under 6404, I read that as encompassing all of 6404 and creating their standard for review. I do not cre- review that as a new standard that, that applies. What, what about those other sections, uh, C and D, which say the Secretary is authorized? Uh, had there been cases which uh, which said that uh, you could sue for for his failure to uh, make use of that order? Your Honor, I've been able to find no case. It's the same as as with oh. E. Yes, Your Honor. As with E one. Yes, Your Honor. There's no clear history of cases. I would also submit, Your Honor, that because of the established pattern of pay and sue versus prepayment jurisdiction and the necessity to make a specific reference to the tax court in any grant of jurisdiction in the tax code in order to enable the tax court to have jurisdiction, that if this is the ruling of this court with regard to 6404H, it is going to raise a question every time prepayment jurisdiction is extended to the tax court over any matter as to whether that somehow now becomes exclusive of the conventional pay-and-sue remedy. Of course, there's a fundamental difference on this particular question between pay-and-sue and and, uh, sue. Prepay. uh, Prepay. Uh, Because if you, in the district court, if you're paying and suing, you're not really subject to the accrual of interest, right? No, Your Honor, that is not correct. So if, and I, if I owe the IRS, IRS $1,000 and they send me a bill and I pay the $1,000, they've got the money. I don't, so I don't owe interest on that, do I? Your Honor, may I reflect it back to this, the facts in this case? The time period with respect to which abatement is requested occurs many years before the IRS ever sent the taxpayer a bill. The errors and delays complained of in this case occurred during the course of the partnership-level examination and proceedings. The taxpayer at that time doesn't even have a notice of what the adjustments are going to be, let alone what his tax liability is. In a partnership case, the partnership-level determinations are made at the partnership level. The government then, without any further notice to the taxpayer, is free to make the computation of the taxpayer's liability and send him a bill. During the pendency of the proceedings at the partnership level, there is virtually no way to tell except as to what the outside maximum liability might be if the government prevails. 
what your liability is going to be. And if, if — So you're saying the initial bill includes the interest? Absolutely, Your Honor, that, that's being asked to be relieved of. But I suppose it's still in — in the tax court situation, it's still accruing. Well, it, Yes, it, it's accruing during the course of the tax court proceeding. And again, even there for an individual, if the time period involved was prior to the assessment, uh, the, the pay and the being able to pay it and cut off the interest really wouldn't wouldn't make sense. Basically, Your Honor, I believe that I believe that the case really rests on. What the, I think the Fifth Circuit summarized quite well when it says that it makes more sense in this case to simply believe that Congress, quote, simply intended, simply chose to extend concurrent jurisdiction to the tax court over a certain class of claims. And that's all it really has done here. It, it has implemented and expanded the conventional jurisdiction of the tax court as a prepayment forum before you do have to pay the liability to resolve a dispute with the Internal Revenue Service. There is no reason, I don't believe, to see this as a major departure from the existing structure of pay-and-sue jurisdiction versus prepayment jurisdiction. This is just a well-established plan that's been in the code for many, many years. Mr. Chief Justice, if the Court has no other questions, I would reserve my remaining time for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Redding. Mr. Marcus. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Court of Appeals correctly held that the tax court has exclusive jurisdiction over actions challenging interest abatement determinations under Section 6404E1. The language, structure, and history of the interest abatement review statute <coughs> supports the Court of Appeals' decision as do principles of sovereign immunity. Under petitioner's theory, the specific restrictions on the remedy that Congress created may be avoided by the simple expedient of filing the challenge in another forum. Nothing in the interest abatement review statute or this Court's precedent permits that result. The place to start is the language of the interest abatement review statute. Section 6404H provides that the tax court shall have jurisdiction over an interest abatement action brought by taxpayers who meet the net worth limitations set out in another part of the code and who file their claim within 180 days of the Secretary's mailing of a final determination not to abate interest. If, if, the, if the history um, of this issue had been such that before the enactment of this section, the courts of appeals were divided, or the courts were divided as to whether or not the, there was jurisdiction uh, in the Court of Claims uh, and then into the district court, uh, would your position be different? No, our position would be the same. Uh, we'd first look to the statutory language of Section 6404E1, and that provision provides that the Secretary may abate interest uh, when there's an error or delay committed um, by an IRS employee in the performance of a ministerial act. And that may language contrasts with other provisions that have mandatory language that requires the Secretary to abate. In addition, uh, if you look at the nature of the so, so it's only so it's only H that gives any court any jurisdiction at all. That's correct. E e even though, in our hypothetical world, uh, some courts of general jurisdiction thought that they did have 
jurisdiction? That's correct, um, Justice Kennedy. Up until 1986, the IRS didn't even have the authority to bait interest in these circumstances. Did, uh, uh, did, did uh, H uh, apply to E2 as well as to E1? Does it apply only to no, discretionary it's, abatement? It's our, it's our position that it applies only to discretionary abatement determinations by the Secretary. Uh, the language, uh, when, typically when, a, when an abuse of discretion standard is imposed, it, it presupposes that the decision being reviewed involves an exercise of discretion. So, so what happens with E2? You, you, you use the, the, the pay and sue provision? Yes, you, you could use it, although it typically comes up when the government has filed an action to recover an erroneous refund. It's usually raised as a defense, but you could, but you, you could bring it that way. Well, isn't, it an abuse? isn't it an abuse of discretion for the Secretary to fail to do what the statute tells him he absolutely must? I think as a technical matter, Justice Kennedy, that's correct, but I don't think that's the natural way to read the statute. And, and when Congress impo- imposed that abuse of discretion standard, it assumed that the decisions that were being, uh, that were subject to review involve the exercise of a discretion. I don't think it's an, I, I, don't, well, I don't even think it's a technically correct way. How is it an abuse of discretion? He has no discretion. He must do it. How could you say he's abused his discretion? What discretion? Well, I think some cases, uh, there's some case law that has said that when there's an error of law committed uh, by a lower court, that can constitute an abuse of discretion. But in our view, again, that's not the natural reading of the standard that Congress put in. Uh, and also, if you look at the legislative history, Justice Kennedy, um, you say that Congress was focused on the absence of a judicial remedy for, with respect to determinations by the Secretary that involve an exercise of discretion. But what the cases said prior to 6404H when they asked for interest abatement was not that we don't have jurisdiction to consider that claim. They would just say there's no standard to apply, so it's committed to agency discretion by law. Then all of a sudden 6404H comes along and gives you a standard, so that removes that objection. What's wrong with that? Well, I think that's, uh, with, with respect, I think the Fifth Circuit's reasoning uh, is too clever by half. The Fifth Circuit um, basically ex- extracted one piece of, of Section 6404H's integrated whole um, and held that there now is a refund cause of action that's not subject to the specific well, restrictions. that's because of the, w- the way that Congress uh, enacted the language. It doesn't say that the tax court and only the tax court shall have jurisdiction. It says the tax court shall have jurisdiction. That is, a, in many respects, a preferred forum, and they're saying you can bring it there as well. But it doesn't take away the jurisdiction that the prior courts had recognized. Well, I think you need to look at what the state of the law was when Congress enacted this provision and try to and think about what Congress would have wanted to do. If, if Congress had wanted to reverse those decisions that had said there was no, cause of, no refund cause of action for interest abatement, uh, they could have easily referenced the refund statute and said there is a refund action available. They also could have specified that the Court of Federal Claims or the District Courts have, can exercise jurisdiction over interest abatement don't you, issues. Don't you think it's kind of strange, though, if you have the interest abatement is available only for a particular category of taxpayer and not others? If no. you have a net worth of $2 million and $1, um, uh, you can't get any uh, interest abatement, but if it's $2 million, you can? I, I, don't, think it's an, I don't think it's anomalous. Uh, I think if you consider the concept of interest under the tax code, uh, the, way, the, way it, the way it works under the tax code is interest accrues on an unpaid tax liability from the time the tax is due until the time the tax is paid. So the, the amount of underpayment is the amount the taxpayer is borrowing from the government. Uh, the interest that accrues on that underpayment is not a penalty. It's just it's a charge, basically, for the time value of money. Well, right, but you abate it in some cases, but you don't abate it in the others. Right, but I think, but I th- I think the idea was that Congress was concerned that some taxpayers, taxpayers that 
fall within the net worth limitations might be in positions where they're, they're less well positioned to pay the full tax liability up that's, front. That's what I thought, or, too. But then I, uh, your, your friend explained that in the, the initial bill is where the, uh, the interest is contained in a, in a lot of these cases, and in this case in particular. So it's not as if you have the opportunity to pay it in advance uh, to stop the accrual of interest. You, just, you get the bill and you find out, you know, you owe $1,000 and 300 of it is interest. I, I don't think that's correct, Your Honor. Uh, the, the way — this is — the interest that's abatable, it, it, you, a taxpayer is in full control of whether that interest runs or not. What, what ha- if the taxpayer pays his full li- tax liability on time, interest doesn't accrue, so there's no interest to abate. Or — But he it, doesn't even know what his tax liability is, especially in the partnership situation. Well, the taxpayer — He makes the partnership ca- calculation. It, it goes to the IRS, and then they figure out what the tax is. And meanwhile, you know, the, the interest is running. Well, Justice Scalia, first of all, the taxpayer is in the best position to know what their tax liability is. If a taxpayer is going to inve- make certain investments, they should understand what the tax consequences are. Well, this, is, this is quite a different argument. You're saying, you know, he should have paid the full tax in the first place, not he could have paid the interest uh, that, that, that he knew was accruing. But he could — right, but he could have prevented that, the abatable interest from accruing. The, this abatable interest doesn't accrue until the taxpayer receives notice from the IRS that there's a problem with the return. So, the, the, in other words, that first period from the time the, un, the underpayment is made until the, until the IRS notifies the taxpayer, that, that interest is not subject to abatement. That automatically accrues, and there's no, there's no remedy. Congress has created no remedy for that period. Uh, and there's, there's just a period — there's a, a provision section uh, — subs- Excuse I, yeah. I didn't understand that. It's a, say, well, say that again. The, there's no abatement for the interest that right, accrues tax, until you're notified of what the until you notify that there's until the, the IRS notifies you that there's there's some, that they're going looking further at your return. They might not at that point tell you precisely how much you owe, but you're on notice that the IRS is looking into your return further, and at that you can at that point make a payment um, put or put down a deposit that doesn't compromise your ability as a taxpayer to go into the tax court. Um, it's, but it does stop the accrual of abatable interest. But you don't know how much to pay. I mean, it, do you? I mean, when they send you the notice, they, they, they don't send a notice that says, you know, we're looking into this and, and we think you're going to end up owing $5,000. Uh, do they? They don't give you a figure. Again, they don't necessarily tell you exactly how much you owe, but it, it, it's well, the tax, don't, do it's they, the taxpayer. they name a figure at all when they, they sometimes, give you the initial notice? They sometimes do, and then at 18 months, at 18 months under the under subsection G, under 18 months now, under the with a provision that was enacted in 1998, the IRS has to, by, at 18 months, tell you how much you owe, and otherwise the interest cannot continue to accrue after that 18-month period. But, but you should, but it is the taxpayer's responsibility to know what their tax liability is. And they can well, that's true. That's true. But you can make that argument. Uh, that argument, if, if you accepted it, uh, would be an argument for, for having no amendment to subsection H at all. Right. Well, that, that, but that's the idea. Con- for, until, 18, until 1986, there was no authority at all for the Secretary to abate. And then Congress gave the Secretary that authority as a matter of grace in 1986 to extend this relief to forgive the accrual of interest. I mean, after all, this is money. And the, and the question is, why is the grace confined uh, to some taxpayers uh, and, and not to others. Uh, I mean, the short answer is because Congress said that, said that, and the Congress decided to impose a net worth limitation. It has said it if we accept your view of the exclusivity of the amendment to age. Right, and, t- and typically, when Congress imposes uh, restrictions on a remedy, this court uh, reads that uh, re- reads that as an intention. Is, is there any other instance in the law? I, I mean, there probably is, but what surprised me about that is this: Imagine we have two citizens, 
And they are identical in every respect in terms of their claim. They each believe the government owes them $50,000. They each have identically strong claims. And Congress passes a law and says one of you can come into court and the other can't. Now, suppose it said the poor person can't come into court. Do you think there wouldn't be a constitutional problem there? Remember, they have the same claim for the same amounts with the same precise uh, strength of their argument. But we say rich people can get We say, why did you do that? We say poor people don't have as much stake in society. Uh, they don't have. Now, suppose you heard such an argument. How long would it take you to feel there's a constitutional problem? Well, I think there has to be a rational basis for drawing. No, 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 no. Yeah, the rational basis is that the poor person doesn't have the stake in society that a rich person does. Well, I don't, I, I don't think Worth that's it. Okay. Now, I, I guess if, it, if you can't keep the poor person out for such a reason, then you can't keep the rich person out for such a reason. So you tell me what the rationale is in keeping the rich person out any more than the poor person. They have the same claim, same amount. Same cause. The cause, by the way, was that some bureaucrat in the IRS forgot to send the notice, so nobody knew what was happening. That was the cause. And the reason it didn't get abated is a different bureaucrat got mixed up. Well, okay? okay? Same claims. Keep in mind, this is what you're talking about is money that — this is interest that's running this on money that, that the taxpayer is borrowing from the government. This, this is money that the, the government is legally entitled to as of the mm-hmm. date it was originally due. Yep. And so this is money that the taxpayer is borrowing. A, a, a large net — high net worth taxpayer can invest that money elsewhere and may well make out even better oh. um, by, oh, oh, at the by end investing of the that day, money elsewhere. The claim happens to be interest worth $5,000. The IRS abused its discretion under the statute in failing to write a check for $5,000 to both. What we do is we allow one of them to bring a lawsuit to get the 5000 And we say to the other one, you can't bring the lawsuit to get the 5000 Now, my question is, what's the basis for that distinction? Right, and the rational basis is that Congress believed that taxpayers of a high net worth, yes. w- would, there would be no hardship but in them not having a cause of action. Why, why would there because, be no hardship? Because they can, they can use, use the money, um, invest the money. In and so days. can a poor person. And, well, the, the, but they're not as well positioned as the as wealthy taxpayer to invest that. The next thing you know, they'll enact a progressive income tax. <laughs> this, this, by the way, will, this has where will we all do, be then? This has nothing to do with the progressive income tax. What I have not seen anywhere is the use of wealth, totally different from the dollar value of a claim, to shut the courthouse door. I'm just saying, is there such? a case anywhere. And if there is no such case, then I'd say I wonder about this assumption, the assumption that the reason that you cannot keep the courthouse door open to everyone is because what? Well, there, first of all, there are other examples. There, oh, what? This, I mean, this is derived from, uh, ultimately derived from the Equal Access to Justice Act, oh. the, the attorney's fees provision that also exists in the tax code. Yeah. And those net worth limitations apply to efforts we, we to We know attorney's fees you give to poor people more than to rich people. That makes sense. That has nothing to do with having a formal rule saying you cannot enter the courthouse. Is it, is it, is it a, a, a cannot enter the courthouse provision here? Or is it, as I understand your, your case, it is that it remains discretionary with the Secretary 
with respect to people who have more money, but it is not discretionary with respect to people who have less money. That's correct. That so is correct. one has a cause of action and the other doesn't have a cause of action. And the difference you're making between the two is you're, you're permitting the Secretary to waive the interest with respect to the rich. You're requiring him to do it with respect to the poor. Isn't that the difference? That, that's correct. There's, a, right, there's an administrative claim. But Wait, but that might be the answer. And, oh, the, let me see if I, and the poor do not have the, the, the incentive or even the ability to defer paying tax, uh, whereas the people that uh, have large bank accounts may, uh, in, in, in investments may well profit by uh, just paying the interest of the government. That's exactly right. And, Justice Breyer, if you want, if, if you — Wait, wait. There are two separate things. I want to understand okay. this. In other words, the Secretary does not have the power to abate the interest in respect to the rich person. No, he does have the authority. Oh. <coughs> but it's, it's permissive, it's not permissive. mandatory. Yeah, the, the Secretary has the authority to abate interest for wealth. But, but he doesn't have — have He can do it they, in they, the first they, case with the rich person. He can abuse his discretion. With respect to taxpayers who meet the net worth limitations. In other words, in the one case, Congress has passed a law saying with a poor person, you cannot abuse your discretion, but with a rich person, you can abuse your discretion. That's what the form, that's what the underlying substantive statute says. And there's another provision. Where, where they're, they're, they're not really saying that. They're saying it's totally within your discretion. You can't possibly abuse your discretion when you have total discretion. They're just saying, you know, do it if you want. Don't do That's it. That's right. It's, it's, it's a matter of it's a matter of administrative grace for the for the taxpayers who are no. But the standard of discretion is the same for the poor and the rich, isn't it? The only difference is that the poor can get into court have an and the rich cannot. They have an enforceable right. It's a right. question of remedy, not standard. Right. If there's a rem- there's a judicial remedy in one case and only an administrative remedy in the other. And is that the That's poverty and, line? And if there's another provision in the tax, I'm sorry, Justice Alito. Is the net worth of $2 million the poverty line now? <laughs> <laughs> not, uh, not that I'm aware of. So, so, what is the, what, so. so what's the rationale? This isn't treating the rich and the poor differently, is it? It's treating exceedingly uh, high net worth uh, individuals and corporations differently from everyone else. Someone with a net worth of $1.5 million couldn't invest the money in the interim? They could. Congress chose to draw the, draw the line where it did. It used, it used this provision that, that was already in place under the Equal Access to Justice Act. It referred to that provision. It's for the, purposes of attorney's fees. Right, the, the provision that applies to attorney's fees. Congress has also imposed this provision in a burden-shifting provision in the tax code, uh, Section 7491. Uh, if the Court wants to get a better idea of what Congress's concern for what it was called the average taxpayer or the smaller taxpayers. Uh, you can look at the legislative history. There was a hearing in March of 1995 um, that's cited um, on page 98 of the uh, supplemental appendix to the SIR petition, and that's, that was the Court of Federal Claims' decision. It's footnote 19. It refers to a hearing in March 1995, and if you read through that, you can see where that concern uh, um, for, the, for average taxpayers and the and lower net worth taxpayers came from. And nothing in Section 64 4H gives rise to an inference that Congress intended to establish additional remedies in the district courts and the Court of <coughs> Federal Claims. To the contrary, this Court has consistently applied the rule that when Congress creates a specific remedy, it intends that remedy to be exclusive. 
That rule is fully applicable here. Otherwise, the specific restrictions Congress imposed on the remedy could be defeated by bringing the claim in a different forum. This but it case would be so li- simple if Congress had just said the tax court shall have exclusive jurisdiction instead of just saying jurisdiction. That, that might have made it simpler, Justice Ginsburg, but it accomplished the same result by imposing these specific restrictions that it did. Um, and again, it would have, it, it, it's, there's another provi- there are two other provisions uh, in the tax code where Congress has, where the but, tax court effectively has, um, one other provision where the tax court has exclusive jurisdiction under section 6330D, um, where also they did, it doesn't specify that the, Congress didn't specify that the tax court has exclusive jurisdiction, but it does, and it's another case where there's an administrative determination. It doesn't go to the underlying but the difference, tax liability. The, di- the difference is that the district court, the claims court, already have jurisdiction for pay-and-sue claims. If you pay the IRS, you can sue to get a refund. And so, so uh, this isn't as if we're looking at something that says the tax court has jurisdiction and trying to use that as a wedge to get other jurisdiction. There's already a grant of jurisdiction. The problem was there was no standard of review for these may-abate claims, and all of a sudden we find in this provision there is a standard of review. It's abuse of discretion, and that fills the void. Why can't they just use that? Well, again, Mr. Chief Justice, I don't think it was just a matter of not being a standard of review. I think it was a matter of this being that of an intent by Congress to have this just be a matter of administrative grace. And if you, again, if you contrast the language of the different... But I thought what you had argued before when people would try to seek this relief was that there's no standard of review to... uh, uh, hold the Secretary's exercise of discretion up against? I think that was one of the reasons that, that the government cited, uh, but I think there were others as well. And but I think one thing you never said was that there was no jurisdiction, because there is jurisdiction in the district court. If you've paid money to the IRS and you want it back, you can bring a refund action. If you have a legal entitlement to it. And the point is you right. didn't have a legal entitlement to it before. That's what the courts held, and Congress responded to that, not by saying you do have a legal entitlement to this through a refund action, which they easily could have said if they wanted to reject those prior decisions, but instead they created a limited remedy in the tax court. And I don't see how you can read that limited remedy in the tax court to give rise to, bro- to a broader remedy that doesn't have the restrictions that Congress imposed. On the tax court remedy, so it should be. I think 6404H should be read as an integrated whole, and you can't just extract one piece and then and bring that over as the Fifth Circuit did uh, to apply to a refund action. I don't think that's the proper way to interpret the statute. I just I thought you. I now think maybe I don't agree on this point that there are different standards, because it does say in this abuse of discretion, and indeed that's a normal administrative standard. And so, as you read this, you would think that the IRS does not have any legal power, substantively, to abuse its discretion in refusing to bring an abatement, to give, in refusing to abate the interest. So far, do you agree? I'm sorry, Justice Breyer, that the Congress... Once they make clear mm-hmm. the standard is abuse of discretion, right. it only makes clear what's there in the law anyway. That administrative authorities do not have the authority to abuse their discretion. Now, sometimes we don't review that in the courts. That doesn't make it legal. This means you can't catch them out in court. Right. So there's a standard that applies to everybody. Then all that this does, to go back to it, is it closes the courthouse door. Now I want to know what your rationale was for doing that. It had nothing to do with the standards that applied. It has to have something to do with why one class of people by wealth are kept out of court. 
I think if it were the other way around, it wouldn't last for three seconds. And the only reason maybe I don't think about it as hard this way, because I think, well, privilege is involved, etc. When you force me to think about it, I want to know what the reason is. Well, I don't think it's right to characterize it as a closing of the courthouse door. Congress opened the courthouse door in a limited fashion in 1996. That, and that's what happened. There was, no, there was no courthouse door open in 1996. I'll accept that characterization. Now you give me the reason why we've opened the courthouse door to individuals who are alike in every respect but for their net worth. Now give me that same reason. I always want to know what the specific reason is, the specific rationale. And I'm not just, saying there isn't yeah, one. I just but, want to know what it is. Just I don't know if I can give you a better one than I gave before, but it's, it's that high net worth taxpayers are better positioned to pay their full tax liability up front and to handle the accumulation of interest in the event that there's some delay in the processing of their return. They're exactly alike, but for their ability to earn interest in different ways. Yes. And I, I, I would not concede, as you seem to have, that, uh, that the, the, the consequence of H is simply to open the, the door. I, I, I think the, the category of, of uh, decisions that are committed to agency discretion by law within the meaning of the APA are agency dis- decisions as to which the term abuse of discretion makes no sense. There's no such thing. It is totally committed to agency discretion. It's only other decisions that are not committed to agency discretion by law where, where, you, where the discretion can be abused. If you look at it that way, it isn't a matter of closing the door to one category and opening it to another. It's a matter of different substantive laws applying to the two, to the two classes. Anyway, I choose to look at it that way. You, you can talk that, about closing. That's a fine way of looking at it, Justice Scalia. <laughs> uh, the, other, the other anomaly uh, the Fifth Circuit identified was a taxpayer, uh, taxpayer seeking a refund having to split off his claims. Uh, this, too, is not a significant anomaly. The vast majority of taxpayers seek redetermination of their tax liability in the tax court, and those taxpayers must split their claims because the interest abatement claim doesn't ripen until the taxpayer's underlying liability has been assessed. Moreover, the interest abatement question is distinct from the taxpayer's underlying liability. They don't it bring it as an additional claim after they get the, uh, the final determination. They start a whole separate action for interest abatement. They, that's, if they if they got if they got relief on their refund claim, if they prevailed in the refund claim, there would be no need to do that. They're, the interest would automatically abate. Um, but if they were unsuccessful, they could per- still pursue an interest abatement claim on the grounds that the IRS committed a. And right. Error is, it, performance is, it, act. is it part of the same proceeding, or is it a separate proceeding? Well, it would be a, it would be a proceeding that would follow uh, the, the no, I'm sure it a, follows a proceeding it, on I mean, the underlying liability. You're, you're making the claim that it, it's no big deal that you have to go to the district court to get your refund and then go to the tax court to get the interest abatement, which does seem like a big deal to me. And you say, well, in the tax court you have to do it separately, too. But it seems to me that if it's the same proceeding, it's not much — it's not as inconvenient. Well, it's, it, it may be inconvenient, but it's a necessary consequence of the exclusive review scheme that Congress set up, and there's no reason to, it's, it's, to take that policy concern and, to, and have that trump the uh, statutory language and the regime that Congress clearly established. And there's no linkage between the two. It's one thing to split a claim when they have common elements, but the interest uh, abatement 
has nothing to do with the substantive underlying substantive liability. That's correct, Justice Ginsburg. It involves questions about administrative problems that might arise during the processing of the taxpayer's case. A ministerial act, the, the failure to transfer a file when a taxpayer moves from one jurisdiction to another, or after everything, uh, or with a notice of deficiency if the, if the agent just um, delays in issuing the notice uh, because he forgot about it and just sat on his desk for a couple of days. Those are the kinds of issues that, that come up in the interest abatement actions. If the Court has no further questions, the Court of Appeals should be affirmed. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Marcus. Uh, Mr. Redding, you have four minutes remaining. If I may, there are a couple of brief points I would like to make. In the legislative history to 6404H, it concludes with the statement that no inference should be made from that legislation as to other courts' jurisdiction. I think that should be taken very seriously. As to the claim splitting issue. Who said that? That's in the House Committee report, Your Honor. The, as to claim splitting, uh, it is actually a horrendous problem when you're talking especially about partnership-related cases. I will note that there are several hundred cases below awaiting the outcome of this case. As in the Kramer and Wiener opinions that came out of the Fifth Circuit, the Court can note that there are claims for interest abatement, ab- abatement not under 6404, but that interest was overcharged by applying the penalty rate of interest. There's a refund claim for the penalty portion of the interest. There's also a refund claim that the tax was assessed outside the statute of limitations. That's clearly a refund claim. None of those claims would be encompassed under 6404H. These taxpayers would have had to have completely split their claims, ask for an interest abatement in the tax court for abuse of discretion on 6404 U1 that the issue is discrete on interest abatement. It involves mishandling within the internal revenue uh, processing. And it's, it's not like other questions that have to do with the, with the intricacies of the Internal Revenue Code. That's only relatively true to 6404E1, Your Honor. But I will note that under 6404A, where cases are now coming out of the tax court for the first time because it now has jurisdiction under H, It provides authority for the commissioner to abate interest where the IRS has erroneously or illegally assessed the the tax liability after the statute of limitations runs or whether it's simply an erroneous assessment. Those claims have nothing to do with discretion, and they're not really just ancillary to the tax liability. They arise out of a substantive challenge to the liability itself. Uh, The Woodrow case that has come out, which is, the I think, the first of the 6404A cases, was an assertion that the interest had been charged after the tax had been paid. Now, that's not a discretionary abatement. That's an illegal assessment of interest, and that's a 6404H claim. Now, previously, it would have been strictly a refund claim under under 1346. I would also note that in terms of the being able to pay it to cut off the interest accrual, that in these cases, these cases that are before the court, the FPAW, the, the document the government first sent out proposing adjustments at the partnership level, if you had computed the liability based on what the government's position was, the ultimate tax liability, including interest, to any point in time, would have been at least three times the amount that results from the tax court decision. It's just ludicrous to say that the taxpayer should be expected to take whatever the government's proposed adjustments are, compute what his maximum liability may be, and pay it in advance or post a bond in advance in order to cut off the interest accrual. So that argument just doesn't, 
in my mind, does not fly, Your Honor. This, this court in Bob Jones University did address the pay and sue versus uh, prepayment jurisdiction issue in terms of constitutionality and due process, and, and basically said that as long as there is a pay and sue remedy available, the taxpayer has no due process rights to a prepayment remedy, but that the court might have come down differently had there been no remedy available in terms of pay and sue. I would also note that both the tax court, the district courts, the Court of Federal Claims, and the appellate courts have long reviewed other discretionary acts within the tax code by the commissioner where no standard is set forth on an abuse of discretion standard, such as the the authorization of the commissioner to abate certain penalties where the taxpayer has sought an independent appraisal on the overvaluation penalty under 6659. Those cases have been reviewed for years by the tax court and by the, the district courts in refund cases on an abuse of discretion standard. It is the federal common law standard for reviewing an abuse of discretion. The determinations in Horton and Selman Holmes are unique in holding that it is totally discretionary. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, the case is submitted.